Gelato is just the Italian word for ice cream. It's like any food product or any product. It's about the care that that chef or that person puts into it. There's plenty of people out there that, you know, doing it for the wrong reason and they don't really care about necessarily the temperature or the quality of the ingredients. Greetings, innovators, and welcome to Back of the Napkin, where we explore big journeys in the world of small business with the personalities who make it happen. This is where small business leaders can hear about unique ideas that have launched successful enterprises across America and meet entrepreneurs who aren't afraid to think differently. And it's brought to you by Sure Payroll, where small business is their business. I'm Stephanie Davis from the Sure Payroll team. And I'm Dusty Weiss, a small business owner from the Midwest. And we are ready to dive into yet another episode of Back of the Napkin after season two, a parade of fascinating guests from around the country. What do you think, Steph? Feeling pretty good about how season two turned out? Absolutely. I've enjoyed talking to everyone and we've covered such a variety of topics and industries and I've loved every minute of it. Today's guest also has a great story and a delicious product to talk about. And just like he runs, I'm going to end up hungry during this chat too. But before we keep going and dive into the episode, we would love it if you took a moment and subscribed to Back of the Napkin in your favorite podcast app. We would hate for you to miss any updates, so take a minute to hit that button. And if you enjoy the show, how about a five-star rating? Or even leave us a review to tell us what you liked, and you might just be helping another entrepreneur like you find the bolt of inspiration they needed. All right, it's time to dive into today's episode. Dusty, thoughts on ice cream and gelato? I have many thoughts, and they are all enthusiastic. Of course, being from Wisconsin, I take dairy products pretty seriously, but my wife and I also had the opportunity to take a trip to Italy. A couple of years ago, she was actually pregnant with our son at the time, but she is a big gelato enthusiast, and so she pretty much insisted that we went to at least two little Italian gelato shops every single day in every town that we visited. So I can now claim some degree of expertise in the subject matter. I love it, and you're going to love what's in store for today. John Snyder owns Il Laboratorio del Gelato in Lower Manhattan. He got his start in the gelato industry early in life because his grandfather owned a Carval ice cream store in New York City. John's parents took over, and he worked there during summers throughout his childhood. When he was 19, he started his own gelato business, sold it, tried some other things, and opened Il Laboratorio del Gelato in 2002. John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's pretty cool that you started your first business and it was a huge success at 19. What was that journey like? Well, it was not a huge success <laughs> at 19. <laughs> I often think of the naivete that you know a 19-year-old has that allowed me to continue with that venture for as long as I did if I had a little more smarts or experience I might have called it quits after 6 or 12 months. When I went into that business, I honestly felt that I could do this for 12 months and I'd make some money and I'd be able to sell it and move on and do other things. It was never, I never thought of it as like a lifelong journey. My first company, which was the Chow Bella Gelato Company, you know, I think when you're that young, you think of things more over the course of months or, or a year or two as being a long time. So I started the company back in, it was 1984, 1983, 1984. And the interesting part about that company was I had very limited funds. I borrowed some money from family and friends and my grandmother loaned me 
like $5,000. I scrambled together about $25,000, which was really not enough money to start a good retail ice cream shop in New York City in Manhattan, which was the idea originally. So by default, the idea became, well, I really want to do this. How can I still do this with the limited funds? The idea pivoted quickly to, well, let's make it. Let's get a kind of a crappy retail location. Let's still make great Italian style ice cream and let's sell to restaurants. So what was a looked as as a disadvantage in the very beginning of not having enough money and and not doing what I originally wanted to do, which was just have a great retail location, by default it became the real staying power of the company. Because retail shops kind of come and go and ice cream shops kind of come and go. It's a tough business in colder climates. You know, you have a you know, retail is about eight months of the year in cold climates, but wholesale is not. You know, restaurants uh, serve ice cream 12 months of the year and they're very busy in November, December when there's lots of parties. And so when restaurants are busy, which is just as busy really in the winter, it just made it a much less of a seasonal company. I credit that as the staying power of that brand and that company. So what, what was looked at as a real disadvantage turned into what the company really became was a, was a wholesale dynamo in New York City of serving restaurants in New York. John, you referred to it as naivete that as a young man at the age of 19 allowed you to go out and say, well, heck with it. I'm going to start my own business. How hard can it really be? And I know from my own entrepreneurial journey that you call it naivete. I like to call it uninformed bravery, but I almost feel like the same thing. Yeah, you need to have some of that if you're actually going to take the risk that is starting your own business. How much of that was rooted in just sort of that indestructibility of youth, of being 19 years old and saying, oh, heck with it, I'll figure it out, versus how much of it was really you really wanted to get out there and make ice cream and share your passion with the world? Yeah. Well, the big part of it was that, was this passion that I developed from a trip to Italy. You know, I had grown up from the age of nine years old working in my family's Carvel store in Westchester County. And so I had this ice cream background every summer. That was my summer job from the age of nine. But then a trip to Italy just kind of wowed me with, wow, you know, the, uh, the other, what ice cream can be. Carvel, our Carvel was like an old fashioned stand where we only served vanilla and chocolate. So two flavors. So you can imagine what a country like Italy with the breadth and depth of ice cream variety and the uniqueness and interestingness of flavors, the impact it had on me. And I was at a point when I was 18, I wasn't quite sure where my career path was going to be. And I was a little bit unsettled on whether I was going to focus on my uh, more of a scientific career or a business career. I just got wowed by this idea and nothing was going to stop me. I was just really passionate about it and promised my folks that I would get back to school eventually, but I quit school for a period of time. And the naivete naivete came about, I think, more maybe someone with a little more experience or worldly wisdom might have put it to rest after a year or two or maybe even three. But I was working seven days a week, long hours for you know, three years, the first two years for sure, without really paying myself anything. Luckily, I I had a really good roommate situation where my rent was really minimal and my expenses were pretty low and I was able to kind of get by. I think after year two, I started paying myself minimum wage. 
But, you know, there was, after around year three, there was certainly rumblings of something's going on here. People are responding. I mean, people have responded positively from the beginning, but we were getting traction. We were getting accounts and restaurants, good restaurants in New York that were interested. And it's just, we started from ground zero of not, I didn't know a, a chef. I didn't know a restaurateur. So it was all cold calling and, and knocking on doors. And that takes time when you're starting from zero without any connections of any kind. So after you started to see that success and make those connections and you did it for a couple of years, you decided to sell Chow Bella. What led to that? Well, burnout is the, the word uh, that I usually <laughs> describe. I, I really, I literally was, you know, it was kind of almost a snowball effect. It was really important for me to, you know, once you're, you put in a year, two years, three years, and you see some light and promise, it was important for me to follow that through and turn it into something that could be sustainable and valuable to someone else. I didn't want to just close up the doors. And it took four years to build it into something that had some value. You could really argue was a thing that could be sustained by somebody else. And um, I never thought I was going to be doing it for five, six years. And it needed someone to take it to the next level. I took it to a certain level we had about 60 restaurants in New York and I think we were doing, you know, this was back in 1989 is when I sold it. We were doing about a quarter million dollars in sales annually. I was paying myself, I think I was paying myself like 50 grand that last year, which back then, you know, I'm 24 years old, wasn't bad. And I was pretty proud of that. And I could have, I could have kept it and moved it forward to the next level, but I just never really meant to do it for that long, I promised my parents I would go back to school. And, and I always was a pretty studious person. And that meant something to me as well to get my degree. And so I just think it was time to move on and do something else. I really didn't think I wanted to be defined as ice cream as part of what defined me. And I was looking forward to other journeys and never, ever thought I would ever get back involved in ice cream. It was a really great experience, but time to move on. And when I sold it, I signed a five-year non-compete. And I used to tell people, you know, if he had asked for a lifetime, no problem. I would have signed on the dotted line. <laughs> you know, it just was not something ever I could imagine going back into. But things happen. <laughs> we'll get to that part in a second here because we certainly want to hear how you came to found your new business. But I have to ask, how was it for you then going back to school Having taken that sort of non-traditional student route, I imagine that going to school, you were surrounded by a lot of people who were younger and didn't have the sort of experience. But for you to have founded a company when you were 19 years old and then sold that company, that's the kind of life experience that you can't learn about in a classroom. Yeah, I was older. I just finished pretty much one year of undergraduate school, so I had to catch up. What it did get me is I went right back into, um, I got into Columbia University. I wasn't, still wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with myself. And I think this is a relatively common experience of uh, entrepreneurs who, who sell their business. There was a period of, um, I'd say at least a year that there was a real loss. It was like giving up your child for adoption. I can only equate it with, I mean, maybe not as severe, but it felt like that. It felt like, I mean, it was my life. You know, I really did work 12, 14 hour days for five and a half years. And I, I thought I wanted out and I thought I was uh, moving on to bigger and better things. I got into Columbia Business School 
as an undergraduate student, they, they had an accelerated program that they accepted juniors into the business school. And then after you finish half of the business program, the MBA program, they give you your undergraduate degree and then you finish up and you get your master's. So, so I got into that accelerated program and I credit my experience with that. So that was helpful. And then all of a sudden, as I'm in the business school, there's a lot of older students and I wasn't so much the odd man out anymore. Entrepreneurs, it was kind of a new thing. It wasn't like it is today where, where they even have entre- an entrepreneurial program that didn't exist. You know, this is what, 20 or 30 years, almost 30, oh my God, almost 30 years ago. <laughs> the flourishing of entrepreneurship on college campuses and the respect that entrepreneurs have in universities and in business schools is a very different thing now than it was back then. So I still had to find my footing and what were, where was my journey going to land from that experience at business school? Well, the stage was set for an epic comeback story. So cue the part in the movie where you peel the sunglasses off, LL Cool J comes on, and you walk into the sunset. We're going to get to that part of the story in just a second when we continue the conversation with John Snyder from Il Laboratorio del Gelato. But first, we need to check in with the Sure Payroll Bulletin. This is Sure Payroll's Back of the Napkin podcast, where entrepreneurs share the stories of their big journeys in small business. I'm Stephanie Davis. And I'm Dusty Weiss, and we are talking to John Snyder, owner of Il Laboratorio del Gelato in New York. And before we dive back into your story here, John, we want to do what we call a fast five. This is five quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. First and foremost, it's a pretty no-brainer question, but what is your absolute favorite gelato flavor? Oh, <laughs> it's a question I rarely answer. You know, we, we make over 300 flavors wow. at our facility. They've all been created by me. So it's like asking you know, who your favorite child, you know. And the honest truth is it depends on the day, the mood. I am a chocolate lover. It's probably why we have almost 20 varieties of chocolate. And there is a chocolate Kahlua is one of my very favorites. So that'll be the one. What is one of your recent small wins? Oh, Recent, I'm going to just call it for the last, you know, pandemic as recent. We've been holding our ground. We're down 60%, 65% from what we were doing in better days. But wow. but that 30, 35 to 40%, I kind of call it a win. Could have been a lot worse than that. I have entrepreneurial friends who are just closed up and doing nothing because it's affected them. And I call 35 to 40% in this environment a win. Anybody keeping their doors open, even if those doors are figurative at this point, that is a huge win. So my hat's off to you for that. When things finally calm down with the pandemic a little bit and we're allowed to travel, what's the first place that you're going? Oh, wow. Probably Seattle. I have a cousin out there and I haven't been there in 15 years. My partner's never been and he has expressed strong, strong desire to get there. And uh, that's high on the list. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> probably has to be pizza. I'm a bit of a pizza snob. When I find the good stuff, there's nothing really quite quite like it. I'm sensing a recurring theme in the ties to Italy here, but if you could have superpowers, what would you choose? <laughs> probably flying. <laughs> I always had a real strong affinity to flight and I wanted to be a pilot in my younger days. And, you know, that's one of those. So, you know, what would I be if I could be anything 
else and uh, kind of a pilot or astronaut. That kind of stuff really is cool to me. A lot of that going around here lately in this podcast. But coming back to your journey as an entrepreneur here, having already run a gelato business once and having left it because of burnout, as you went into the process of launching Il Laboratorio del Gelato and setting up your second gelato business, what were some of the challenges that you faced and how did you go about making it different from the first time around? What lessons did you apply from your first entrepreneurial journey into doing it again? The first thing that I was sure I needed to do was to properly utilize media. The first time around, it was simply cold calling and getting the word out by knocking on doors. And it was a pretty big part of the reason for doing it. I knew there was a really good story there. I'm not sure in Wisconsin, but on the East Coast, Carvel is has a lot of fans and it's a brand from the 40s and 50s and 60s. And people have really fond memories of Carvel who've grown up in this area. And the whole story from the Carvel and my grandparents and working there in Chalbella, and I just thought it was going to be a really cool, well-received story. So I, I hired a PR firm immediately and I I was careful about it because I was using my savings. I didn't have any partners. I didn't want to take on any debt. So I was careful with my money, but I did hire a PR firm to get the word out. It was just a three-month hire because I, I kind of thought that's all it would take. And that did really work out very, very well. The woman I hired, she would give speaking tours about media and public relations. And a few years after I opened, she would tell me that you know she would often bring up my story as being one where all the stars aligned in terms of public relations. It was a great product, timing was perfect, and it just sold really and was received really, really well. The New York Times wrote a full page article about myself, basically, because it was it had pictures of the Carvel, it had pictures of me and Chow Bella. The whole story was uh, a full page, and you know you can't buy that kind of thing. When the New York Times does that kind of stuff, there's often a snowball effect, and and there was. And for the first, I'd say the first three to four to five years of my company, we were in some sort of media, local, national, or international, like pretty much every week. The story sold really well, better than I would ever have thought. So the PR thing that I knew I wanted to get out in the beginning was really important to me, and it was a big success. The other initial stuff was the product. I had followed Chow Bella over the years and I, I'd also, you know, 12 years later is when I started this new brand. I had traveled a lot around the world in those years and I really felt that my my own palate had matured to a significant degree that I could I could create something that was better than what I'd created before. So that was exciting to me to be able to put out a product that I knew was going to be superior to what I put out before, which was well-received before. So, you know, those two things were really, really important. You had mentioned also that burnout played a significant role in your eventual departure from Chow Bella. Even before the pandemic, burnout with careers has been kind of a hot topic in professional circles now. I see it a lot in my LinkedIn feed. How have you found success in reducing and preventing burnout this second time around? There's aspects of it that I haven't been able to entirely get away from because I think it's almost a personality thing that I I thrive on my work. The company became very successful right out of the gate. I wouldn't say financially necessarily was happening 
from day one. That certainly took a year or two for it to be strongly in a great financial position, only a year or two. It was really so well received that it was just impossible not to be excited to go to work every day and to put in long hours again. I was living alone and I just had a lot of time on my hands and I, I sunk it right back into this venture. I think the success helped, you know. Chowbella was not financially successful, especially in the beginning. So I was putting in all this time and energy and for, you know, no reward or, or the possibility of no reward, the real possibility of no reward. So that's been a, probably the hardest part of my company, which is now we're going on 19 years, is finding balance and, and forcing myself to have balance and to get away and to hire and to delegate. And how I do it is I tend to try to get myself in a situation where I'm forced to get away from work. And I bought a house. It was kind of a dream of mine for a long time. And about seven years ago, I bought a house up in uh, Upper Westchester. A big part of it was, well, if I buy the house, I'll see how much money I'm spending on this house. And I've got to I'll go to the house because I, I'll be upset if I don't go to the house and I'm wasting money on this house. So so that helped. <laughs> Getting married and having two children, you know, you, you get forced to, you got you can't go to work every day. You got to spend some time at home or come home early. And so I, te- I tend to work a little bit backwards like that. I find stuff that will force me not to work and then I, I follow that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, certainly. Uh, having a couple of kids similar in age to your own, I know that sometimes you don't get a choice. Sometimes you're just not working. And while stressful in the moment, that's probably part of a healthy balance as yeah. well. So for those who don't know, what's the difference between gelato and regular ice cream? All right. That's a question that I get asked a lot. And I've had some interesting like arguments even about that question. Um, it brings out some debate and some ferocity in some people. To me, and, I, and I've been doing this a long time, so I do think my voice, uh, <laughs> I have a... Uh, a relevant point of view on this question is that gelato is just the Italian word for ice cream. And it's almost a nonsensical question. You know, you would never ever ask me what's the difference between cheese and formaggio, which is the Italian word for cheese. There's not just one ice cream in Italy. It's all called gelato because they speak Italian. And there's not just one ice cream in America. And it's all called ice cream because we speak English. You go from region to region in Italy And from the south to the north, in the south, in Sicily, ice creams tend to be very icy. They traditionally don't use eggs as they do more in the north, more milk, less cream. That's a factor of geography. It's hotter, so something more ice milky, it's more refreshing than something heavier with more milk, cream, butterfat. And it's also a factor of wealth. The south has traditionally been, in the past especially, a more poorer So they couldn't afford the eggs and the cream to put into ice cream. When you find the good stuff in Italy, there's nothing like it because they really can, I really believe they really know what they're doing when they're trying. (laughs) But you can find some really commercial, terrible ice cream in Italy. It's not unheard of. It's all over the place. It's on every street corner. There's some pretty bad stuff, but there's some pretty amazing stuff too. And it's all called gelato. That said, I always have to start with that because that's my little education about what, you know, what is gelato. Traditionally, Italians have used more milk and less cream in their ice creams than traditionally Americans have. So ice creams have less butterfat. Also, another genius of Italian ice cream is their machinery. 
they kind of invented this slow churning machinery that doesn't whip a lot of air into their ice creams. So you have this lower butterfat, less heavy product that has a great texture because there's not a lot of air in it. It's not, it doesn't taste very whipped up and airy. It keeps a really great dense consistency. And that is what enamored me into Italian ice cream is that you can kind of eat a lot of it without getting full. You know, you can have only a, so much of Haagen-Dazs. It's heavy, but the lower butterfat ice creams, you know, if you find them made properly with less air, so the creamy texture is still there, but they still have a lightness to them. And the really added benefit of that is flavor. Butterfat butter can really mask flavor. So that's another genius thing of Italians with ice cream is that the flavor can really come through whatever that flavor might be, whether it's chocolate or fruits or nuts. It's not being masked by that butter that cream can add. I like that answer a lot because it surprised me because I was expecting the pure science answer. And what I got was the emotional cultural answer first and then the science answer. And so that was a lot of fun for me. But as I confessed earlier, when my wife and I were in Italy, we went from Rome to Florence and kind of all over the Tuscan countryside and every little town we stopped and we got gelato. And like you said, you noticed that even in Italy, there's a noticeable spectrum. I can't say I ever had bad gelato. That would be a stretch. But there's mediocre gelato. Most of it is good. And then there's the really good, just nose above the rest kind of gelato. What is it that raises a gelato above the rest of the pack? Yeah. Well, I I just got to disagree with you. There is bad gelato. There's really bad gelato. I didn't find it. (laughs) And uh, it's like any food product or any product. It's about the care that that chef or that person puts into it. There's plenty of people out there that, you know, doing it for the wrong reason and they don't really care about necessarily the temperature or the quality of the ingredients. It's quality of ingredients and it's the manufacturer. It's difficult to not put air into ice cream. (laughs) Cream wants to take on air. At my company, we put a lot of stress on our machinery to try to not let the air get in, which is straining on our motors because it uh, you have to get it really cold. If the product is really cold, it won't take on air. So it takes effort. And ingredients, just, you know, really good cream, really good fruit, you know, a good high percentage. Our sorbets, which are, you know, the non-dairy of what we do, and we do a lot of it, pretty much any fruit you can think of, we turn into a sorbet. They're 90% fresh fruit and a little bit of water and a little bit of sugar. And it's a really simple way to make sorbet, but it's really expensive because it's such a high percentage. And Could we do it at 85%? Could we do 80, 75, 70, 60, 50, 40? Yes, you can do all that. You know, water is very cheap. It's not going to be as good. So it's just having the palate to understand that this is the best way to do it and caring. And look, I'm also in the enviable position of we have a lot of clients, maybe not so many right now, but in better days, it's easy for me to not cut corners, having an established business because it's expensive to do it the right way and to get, you know, really good chocolate and vanilla is so expensive and fruits can be very expensive. And, but it's, it's really that it's quality ingredients. All right. So in 19 years, you've done a lot and the majority of your business has focused on wholesale. 
you have a few retail locations. Do you have any plans on expanding or anything else you're looking to try? The next six months or so, we'll focus on getting ourselves out of our situation of like we all are trying to get back to some kind of normalcy. And I'm confident, very confident that that will happen. It's going to be an exciting time also because the decimation of the New York restaurant scene and the sadness of that is hopefully going to be, you know, what's going to replace that is an excitement about the rebirth of it. That's got to happen. It will happen. So new people in the scene and chefs who are moving around and opening their own places. And so there's going to be a lot of exciting stories and a lot of excitement in the restaurant business in New York. And that's really going to be my main focus. In 19 years, I've, and especially because of all the media attention, I've been asked many times to franchise and, and I've always said no. I've been very happy with focusing on my New York you know, establishment and I've always responded to people who've come to me with wanting a franchise that if, you know, I, I'm much more excited for you if you open your own place and put your own name on it. You know, I'm more than happy to give advice and I've given a lot of advice over the years and I have two employees that open their own shops, one in San Francisco, one in Atlanta uh, over these years. And But this past year, a couple of people came to me and I said yes, because it just was the right time to do something maybe a little different, to pivot a little. We signed an agreement with a couple in Shanghai and they're committed to opening a shop there by, if not the end of this year, by early next year. They're going to be training how to make the products in, in New York. So that's exciting. They're going to use my name. It'll be Il Laboratorio uh, Shanghai. I'm sure they probably another way to say it in uh, Mandarin. But <laughs> And then I just moved to Montclair, New Jersey personally a month ago, and we closed on the house in December. Within three days of closing, I got an email from a gentleman who lives in Montclair. He was very excited about the idea of opening a franchise in Montclair, New Jersey. Total coincidence and kind of crazy. We've had a bunch of meetings. We've talked and we signed an agreement and he's uh, he'll be opening in about a month, about two miles from my house. So that'll allow, uh, it'll enable me to keep an eye on it and he'll be using the name. He won't be making the product there. We'll be delivering to him. But uh, that's exciting to have a few uh, of these kind of ventures in the back pocket. Well, congratulations to you on that. That's really exciting. And certainly after a year of COVID lockdowns, it's really exciting to hear about a business making plans to expand and succeed. And like a lot of folks, I think that we are all just really excited for the time when things start getting back to normal as shots go into arms and we get our arms around this pandemic. And so we wish you nothing but big success here in what I think everybody is hoping is going to be a wild and active summer out of doors with the people that we know and love and haven't gotten to see for a really long time. So John Snyder, the owner of Il Laboratorio del Gelato, that's all the time that we have for today. But John, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Back of the Napkin. I said the same thing after we finished talking to Hiran about nonsense, but I always enjoy talking about food and uncovering a great small business story in the process is also great. While I don't have any gelato nearby, I might need to go get some ice cream. What about you, Dusty? Do you scream for ice cream? We have many, many options in the wonderful land of dairy that is Wisconsin. So maybe a little Babcock, maybe a little bit of Cedar Crest. But being a tried and true Wisconsinite, I also do need to point out that Never once in the course of this conversation did frozen custard 
come up, and that is a whole new unexplored world of frozen dairy dessert goodness. Please make sure that you're subscribed in your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating or even a review. We would love to hear from you about any ideas you have for small business owners who we should be featuring on this show. Back of the Napkin is brought to you by Sure Payroll. From easy online payroll to 401k support and award-winning customer service, Sure Payroll has been serving the payroll and business needs of small businesses for more than 20 years. Learn more at surepayroll.com and get two months free as a new customer. Here on Back of the Napkin, in addition to co-hosting, I'm executive producing. Co-producers are Dave Papa and Carrie Straits, and our production partners are PodCamp Media. Where we provide branded podcast production services for businesses. Our editor and producer is Larry Kilgore III. So thanks for tuning in to Back of the Napkin. I'm Dusty Weiss. And I'm Stephanie Davis. Stephanie Davis.